What's your secret? One time I was leaving work and it was really dark out and there was a car in front of me. I didn't have my actual lights on. And there was a guy in front of me and I thought he was, he'd let off his brake to go and he didn't. And I like banged into him and he just, he got out and was like yelling at me and he's like, do you have a full-time job? And I was like, yes. And he's like, okay, then it's fine. There's no damage. And he left. <laughs> it was really weird. And I didn't tell anybody about it. I was like, I was so embarrassed that I hit this guy. And then he like shamed me, but he's, I was employed. So I must be an upstanding citizen. My grandmother lived in a trailer kind of off this dirt road, and we would go there all the time. Today, Noelle reveals a dark family secret. It's hard to talk through this without choking up, but it's so hard for me to really reconcile. It's a secret whose time has come. I've been listening to the secret room for a long time and never thought I had anything really interesting to tell. And then I was like, holy shit. Maybe I should call Ben and tell him this. I wonder if this would be the way to get this out. But opening up about it is only part of the battle. She would have to go and hunt him down at bars at night sometimes and, and threaten to shoot him if he didn't come home with her. She also had to reconcile the truth with the love she felt for her grandparents. It was such a secret. I remember my grandmother specifically telling me, do not ask your great-grandmother about this ever. It is totally off limits. And what it meant for her place in society. Today I was just feeling particularly emotional about my secret and I thought I would share with you that my mom's mother and father were active members of the KKK in South Carolina and I've never really told anybody about that. Welcome to The Secret Room, a podcast about the stories no one ever tells. I'm Ben Ham. Hi Noelle, welcome to The Secret Room. Hey Ben, thanks for having me. Thank you for sharing this very amazing story. Absolutely. I'm excited to get it off my chest, to be honest with you. <laughs> I was really amazed when you sent it. I was like, wow. Yeah. it's. She's going to share something really deep. It's pretty heavy. Yeah. <laughs> and I called you back pretty quick, right? <laughs> you did. I was shocked. I was, didn't you expect that. <laughs> I thought you were spam. It happened the next day, right. I think. <laughs> yeah. My number has a lot of zeros in it. What can I say? <laughs> that doesn't help. <laughs> no, it didn't. <laughs> You know, to really dig deep into your secret, I think we just have to understand some context first. And I just wanted to start out by asking you, you know, where you were raised and what year it was when you were 10 years old. Uh, I was born in the mid-1980s in the, the Deep South, the Bible Belt town uh, in the Appalachian Mountain region. I'm an only child and uh, I was raised by a fairly small family of uh, a couple grandmothers and my mom and my dad. And what was the community like where you grew up? Yeah, so um, the community where I spent most of my time with my immediate family and my mom's family, my dad's family, is a pretty small town. It's very rural. I would say it was about, you know, 25 minutes to a Walmart, if that's helpful for any, okay. <laughs> anyone to kind of gauge right. gauge the kind of town that it is. It's, it's pretty small. Um, it's kind of near the mountains. A lot of farmers live there. There's a few factories. That's kind of the primary demographic or factory workers the schools that I went to were predominantly African-American and they were desegregated pretty late for the state that I grew up in. Actually, my parents were the first class of, of white people to go to my high school. Oh, gosh. Do you know what year that was? 
That would have been somewhere in the late 70s when they graduated. So early 70s, maybe. It it was fairly late when they started going there. What was your relationship like with your parents? Growing up, very close to both of them. Um, Interestingly, they've been divorced to each other a few times. That was a little bit rocky. They're not together anymore. I would say I'm probably a lot closer to my dad. Although until I moved out of the Bible Belt area I grew up in to head somewhere else for college, I was very close with both of them. As I've changed a lot since I lived in in that region, um, I would say my mother and I have grown apart quite a bit. Um, We just don't see eye to eye on a lot of things. and My values are a lot different than they were uh, growing up around her. So my dad and I are still really close. And actually, he, he moved to where I live now to be near me. And so they divorced and married several times? They did. Yeah, it was was the first time when I was in second grade, again, when I was 12, I think, 13, and then again in high school. And on again, off again marriage. Yeah, it was, but they were never with anyone else. She she got several rings out of it too, which is kind of funny to me. (laughs) All right. Maybe she just wanted more diamonds. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Looking back, what values would you say that they instilled in you? You know, this might pertain to your story. Yeah, oh, that's a good question, Ben. So from from my mother, she taught me that you don't hate anyone and that all people are equal and it's not okay to be racist towards anyone. She's very religious, deeply. She's a Southern Baptist Convention, evangelical Christian, so she's deeply religious. And so she uh, she she wanted to instill that in me too. And I would say I've grown apart from from the church as I've become an adult. But growing up, we were involved and definitely taught to love one another and support each other, things like that. My dad, you know, very, very same thing. But I would say we didn't get into those kind of deep conversations. We went mudding and hunting and hiking. And we just didn't talk a lot, but we did a lot of cool stuff together. So I wouldn't say that he and I have really had a lot of deep value-based conversations before. That was more her realm growing up. And you made a point to say that, you know, she taught you not to be racist. Yeah. I was just going to ask for some more insight on that. Like, was that an underlying current in the childhood upbringing or were there specific conversations about that? It was an underlying current and there were specific conversations. Um, It was something that I think was really important to her to get across to me um, because of some of the experiences that that we've had that I'm sure you and I'll dive into a little bit later, but definitely was something that I was taught. I mean, she had friends that were people of color, of of many different kinds of people, different ages, and, and I hung out with them and she made sure that I had a diversity of friends. She made it a point to to involve me in different families of people of color to have lots of friends and sleepovers and things like that. So she made, I would say, an active effort to diversify who who I spent time with as a kid. Well, that's so commendable. Yeah, I mean, it, it didn't doesn't seem like that back then. It just seemed like that's how things were, you know. But as I've gotten older, I realized there was definitely a reason behind that for her. Right. You know, and as I think about what I just said, it, you know, that isn't something that. Sh- you should have to say is commendable. It should just be the way that it is. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, there's a lot of things that I look back now, especially after the last few months with the really important movements that we're seeing in the U S and around the world that are definitely reframing how I'm thinking about stuff that happened when I was a kid. And so how did that strike you at the time? You know, you saw your mom making overt conscious efforts to ensure that you had diversity in your life. You know, I don't think I thought anything of it. You know, one of my best friends, we'll call her Carla, growing up, I spent the night at her house all the time. I mean, she was black. Yeah, she was black. 
my mom and her mom went to high school together. My mom's uh, best friend, best male friend, I should say, we'll call him Derek. Uh, he's he's black and he has kids and we just always hung out. We go out to dinner together and I, I really didn't think anything of it. I mean, you have to remember the town I grew up in was not an all white town by any means. So the only time you're really ever around just white people for me was at church. In these regions where I grew up, typically black people and white people go to separate churches and unless it's some of the more, you know, later on in my high school year, some of the more progressive Christian churches were a little more diverse. When I was able to get a car and drive, I started going to those. But yeah, growing up, that was about the only time you would only be around white people for me. It was just when I was at church. Did you notice that difference? I think I did. Yeah. Because I went to Carla's baptism and I was the only white girl there that day. I remember that very vividly. I just felt so, I don't know, it was, it was almost the first time I'd really felt awkward at church being the only white person there. And it was fun. It was way more fun than my church usually is. The music was way better. <laughs> People were a lot more energetic. Uh, but I just didn't understand why my church was so boring and hers was so fun. And um, yeah, I definitely noticed the difference. So digging deeper into your family's ancestry, can you tell me a little bit about your great-grandparents on your mom's side? Yeah, so um, my great-grandparents were from a town much smaller than the one that I'm from Okay. that I told you about earlier. So using the Walmart scale again, 45-minute okay. drive to civilization. I didn't know him really well. He died, I think, when I was maybe 10 or 11 years old, and she passed away uh, in 2012. And so uh, I was really close to her. I spent summers with her all the time, um, cared a whole lot about her. She would still, um, maybe we'll talk about this later, but send me things once I moved away for college. And, uh, you know, she was just somebody who I was very close to in my life. Uh, I never knew him very, very well, but she and I were quite close. You learned something about your great-grandfather, you know, regarding his relationship with your great-grandmother, right? Yeah, so... I'll tell you, my great-grandmother had this really cool old yellow Chevy truck, and she would tell me stories sometimes about, and it had a, an, an umbrella rack in it when I was a little kid, but before it was illegal, it used to be a gun rack, and she told me that she would have to go and hunt him down at bars at night sometimes and, and threaten to shoot him if he didn't come home with her because she wow. had you know, kids at home and uh, grandkids too at home, my mom and her brother, so uh, she, he, he was known to ramble quite a bit. And I learned when I was a kid, maybe around eight, nine, 10 years old, somehow it came out that he had had an affair with my mother's nanny. And my, my mother actually had an African-American nanny and he had an affair with her. And, um, it was uh, like this huge family secret. I've never been allowed to know who he is. I've tried to find him. I don't know his name. This is your uncle we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's my oh. uncle. And I, I have no idea who he is or where he is or anything. I would love to know, of course. Yeah. So I, ha I have an uncle that I've never met and don't know who he is, but I know that it caused a huge family rift. And my great grandfather actually passed away from a health issue, not from my great grandmother shooting him or anything like that. Um, but it definitely caused a lot of problems in the family. And I know she, I don't know if this is why, but my great grandfather, great grandmother, definitely was quite the racist. And, and sometimes I wonder, now that I know this as an adult and looking back, if some of that was fueled by that affair, I'm sure it was there before that. But I, I do think some of the things she used to say to me when I was a kid were probably fueled by that. And so what specifically caused the rift? Was it the fact that he had an affair or that he had an affair with a black woman? I think it's the latter. I don't know a lot of details about it, but I do know that I was told to never ask her about it, 
never bring it up. And I knew that he had other affairs because she would tell me that. I was sworn to never ask her about that particular situation and him. And and also, like, you know, my all of my grandparents died within about a 13-month period in 2012. So I went to quite a few funerals that, you know, over that time frame. And I always wondered if he was there, but I, I don't I don't think he was, and I never know who he is. Wow. But you've taken steps. You've looked for him. Yeah, I've tried to find him mostly on Ancestry.com. My mom doesn't even know his name, um, although it's been a long time since she and I have had a conversation about anything you and I are talking about today. But yeah, she she's told me before she didn't know who he was either. And I think she looked through my grandmother and great grandmother's stuff after they both passed away. But I don't think she found any any clues about it because I'm pretty sure that you know, whatever happened to that woman and her child, I'm sure that my family didn't support her and was probably not involved at all. wonder if there might be any county or hospital records. Mm, maybe. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. You always have these ideas on other episodes. I didn't right. see that one coming, though. That's a good idea. <laughs> well, there's, you know, a possible route to chase. Yeah. Okay. Noelle, I have a few questions here. Okay. Okay. First of all, the uncle who is half black. Yeah. He is the product of a relationship between your great-grandfather and his African-American nanny that was looking after your mom? Correct. Okay. I know that you said that you don't have any knowledge of that relationship. You know, it was a strictly forbidden subject and basically everybody who knows anything about it has taken the secret to the grave, right? Yeah. But I wonder if you've ever thought, you know, about the nature of that relationship. Was it consensual? I see shades of another struggle we're dealing with in society right now. There is an employer-employee dynamic. Mm -hmm. Your great-grandfather had that power over her. What was her living situation? And, you know, if she did not go along with this quote-unquote affair, could she find herself homeless or without a job or destitute? <sighs> you know, maybe it was not really consensual on her part. Yeah, I think that's entirely possible. I mean, there's a very powerful power dynamic at play between him and he was a very a large man too. So I, I don't remember his personality very much, but I remember how big he was and sitting in his lap, you know, and how small I felt next to him. And I can only imagine if you're, you know, a, a woman working in around that household and that kind of thing happens and you're fearing for your, your, your livelihood and your, your income and everything. Yeah. It sounds like a horrible situation. It's possible. And then also the fact that your uncle is just out of the scene just speaks to how disposable he is as a black person. Yeah, I think so. And I, He's just gone. It makes me so sad just knowing how like that my mom wasn't even privy to that information to know because I know she wonders who he is and where he is too. And just the fact that it was such a secret. I mean, my, I remember my grandmother specifically telling me, do not ask your great-grandmother about this ever. It is totally off limits. And so... I think she might have been the only one that knew, but she never told us. And it just definitely goes to show how disposable not only their feelings and situation were in all of this, but just that how easy people can erase something from other people's memories, you know, in future generations of a family just by holding that back. It's crazy. Well, well, I hope you find him. I hope so, too. I don't I don't even know if he would be alive by now. Yeah. How old would he be now? He would probably be... I mean, he'd be younger than my mom, who she remembers the nanny, and my mom was probably six, five, six years old, so maybe he in his 60s. Okay. Might be alive. Could be possible. And the nanny, she's... 
Yeah, I don't know. Uh, she would be very, yeah, she would probably be in her 80s if, if that timeline works out. She could be around. Yeah, possibly. Have you ever tried to find her? No. Do I, you know her name? I don't know anything about her. And my mom knows her first name, but I don't, I don't, I don't remember what it is. And I definitely know that it would raise a lot of red flags if I asked, but I'm not afraid to. That's actually pretty interesting. I wonder if she and I, maybe I could approach that subject. Talking about issues of race are really touchy with my mother. So I have to tread lightly. (laughs) So why are they touchy with your mother? Because she was so proactive about ensuring diversity in your childhood. That's a really good question. I would say my mother wasn't overtly racist, but I would say she is not anti-racist. And I've learned a lot about that term personally as an adult just over the last couple of months. And it's interesting because, you know, the culture in which she was raised, it was so intensely racist. And I think that she does, she thinks she's the exact opposite of that. And I believe she can take way more steps to be even further away and distance herself from that value-based system and that worldview. So, Noelle, until this point, we've, you know, learned a lot about you, your context, where you came from, the attitudes that shaped you as a person. But your secret is really born on one critical day when you made a discovery at just 10 years old. Can you tell me about that day? Yeah, I remember it really vividly. With the groundwork on Noelle's background complete, it's time now to reveal the heart of her secret. And that is the hair-raising discovery Noelle made at a tender age. It's a discovery that would change her worldview and change her life forever. Stay with me. Now back to Noelle and the secret discovery she's revealing here on The Secret Room. It's a discovery she made at just 10 years old. So my grandmother, my, my mom's mother, lived in a trailer kind of off this dirt road and we would go there all the time, multiple times a week for dinner, whatever. And she was a little bit of a hoarder. And so I would just ramble around in the spare bedrooms and look through all her stuff and play in her clothes. And I was just going about that one day playing in one of the rooms and I'd started with the eight track player because I'd never seen one of those didn't know what it was and then I was playing with her collection of California raisin dolls these little bendable weird looking dolls in the closet and I kept digging deeper and I found you know this box and then all these really pretty satin I think it was satin in my mind they were kind of shiny these colorful robes that were hanging in the closet And so I took them out and I'm kind of playing around with them and just, I'm being really quiet. I'm an only child. So I was an expert at entertaining myself. So I, uh, I was just playing dress up with them, which looking back, just kind of makes my skin crawl. Hmm. And my mom comes in there and flips out and she not, she's not mad at me, but it's almost like she saw a ghost or something. She was like, Oh my God, no, absolutely not. Take that off right now. She flips out. Were you wearing the hat too? No, I wasn't. (laughs) Thank God. Uh, I just, I was just kind of wrapped up in this, what I thought was this really beautiful silky fabric, you know, kind of playing around with that and playing with these dolls. And so she grabs everything and and off me and throws it in the closet. And of course I'm like locked and loaded to ask a million questions of why was, why did you do that? What happened? What's wrong with those clothes? What did I do wrong? Et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I remember she was just like, no, we're not talking about it right now. It's time to go. 
you know, whatever. So, so we left and she kept kind of putting that conversation off for, for quite a while. Okay. Uh, but I knew something was up. And for many times later, I would sneak in there and, and dig and th- look through that box and read the documents that were in there. And particularly once I knew what it was, I started looking at it more. When did you find out what it was? Oh, it was a few years later. I don't remember exactly how old I was, but I know I was somewhere around middle school because I remember my mom and I were riding in the car somewhere for a while and she started telling me about it. And it was because we passed this particular high school where a lot of it happened. So she started telling me she was forced to participate in KKK marches at that high school. I I knew that the robes in the closet were were weird, but I didn't know they were KKK robes because when you see that in the news or, or where, or I don't know, wherever people see images of that, People always think that they're they're white robes, you know, that's the classic image of that. But actually what a lot of people don't know, and I didn't know until this day, was that the higher ranking you are in the KKK, there's different colors that, that depict how, how high up you are and how powerful you are in it. And for my memory, these robes are like, I think there was a green one. There was definitely like an orange or red one. My mom was forced to as a kid, her and her brother were dragged along to these KKK marches at high schools and all over other places too. But we just happened to be passing this high school where she had been through this. What's really, really fucked up about it is that kids were not allowed to wear robes. And so she told me that her parents were robed and you don't know who anybody is when you're in those things. They cover you your whole face. Right. But the kids were not in robes. And so she was seen by entire communities unprotected with her parents marching at KKK rallies when she was young. And that set off a whole trajectory for her life up through high school that was pretty rough. That is really interesting. But so if the point of the robes, part of the point, is to hide the identity of the person who's wearing them, why would they bring their children with them? Because they know that that would out their own identity. You know, I have no idea. I never thought about it. I, I just remember sitting there like super stunned at all of this information. I just didn't really get why my grandma would have these robes until my mom told me that her parents were active members in the KKK. What was your immediate reaction when you heard that? I mean, me looking back at then, I was, I don't know if I cursed when I was that young, probably a little bit under the uh-huh. radar, but I was probably like, holy shit, what the hell? Like, this is crazy. Right. You know, I, I I didn't know anything about the KKK and I didn't know, certainly never knew anybody in my family was involved in that. And then I, the next thing I was like, oh my God, who else knows about this? It, you know, because I know that some of the people that I was going to high school with, their parents knew my mom was involved in that because she was in physical fights with these kids. So then I just kind of started wondering about how many of my own friends knew my family was in the KKK. I remember that being something I was worried about in middle school. Wow. And so your mom got in fights with other kids when she was in high school over her involvement in the KKK? That's what she said. She said that it was more of like middle school or or elementary school. She was riding the school bus and she said kids would beat her up uh, because the school buses were black and white kids were mixed together. And she says that black kids would beat her up on the school bus. There was a guy on the bus She's still friends with Kevin to this day, but he one day like let her sit with him to protect her. He was in high school. She was not. He was a lot older than her to protect her. And Kevin was black? He's black, yeah. And uh, she said no one ever beat her up again after that once he kind of stood up for her. Wow. Yeah. 
What a story. Yeah, and I know it left a huge impression on her. She cried when she told me that part of it, and she said it was awful. I mean, my mom had a lot of severe issues in high school. She was she had eating disorder. She eventually had to drop out of high school, um, and she went back later. When I remember being at her graduation when she got her GED, but yeah, it, it caused a lot of psychological issues for her, some I think even still to this day. How did her parents, your grandparents, react to her getting beat up at school over her involvement in the marches that they forced her to take part in? Yeah, I have no idea, to be honest with you. I've never asked her that. Um, I know she said that not long after that, they, um, quote unquote, got saved. Uh, They're Southern Evangelical Christians. So she said when they got saved as adults later that they left the KKK Hmm. um, because they didn't they didn't believe it was the right thing to do anymore. Although I will say that when she talks about that time, my mom is, my mom is very, she's really close in her mind to her dad that passed away. And I think to relieve some of the cognitive dissonance that she feels between him being so involved in the KKK and who he is in her mind and and how close they were. She says that the KKK he was involved in wasn't as racist as what you see in the news that they were more about, you know, outing wife beaters and and other kinds of like terrible. She said that they were also against white people as much as they were against black people. I don't believe that, but I do believe that that's the story she's told herself to help her deal with the fact that this man that she cares so much about was in the KKK. And so did your mom ever tell you exactly what roles or rank or, you know, what, what level of participation her parents had in the KKK? And I asked because you said that they had some colored roles and that indicates a higher position in the organization. Yeah. What I understand is that he was a grand dragon is the term that she used. And I have honestly never looked it up and never tried to learn what all this was until after I left you that voicemail and then you call me back and I was like, oh shit, now this is real. I might need to know some stuff about this. So I tried to look it up and it's not easy to really find out. You can't, I can't Google my grandfather's name. Nothing comes up. I've tried um, to figure out what his actual rank was, but I did find that orange orange or red, uh, that those indicate something like Grand Dragon, I think was the term. And I, and I believe that's the equivalent of like a state leader. I, I really don't know because, you know, now the organization of the KKK is probably quite different since it's pushed more underground now than it was back then. So I don't really understand at what level he was leading. But they lived in multiple states and he was active in several states. All right. I think it's just uh, safe for us to assume it was a level of some prominence. Yeah, um, judging by the, some of the stuff I found in the closet, I definitely think that was the case. So do you remember the first time you went back to her closet when you were armed with the knowledge that, yes, your grandparents were in the KKK? Uh, I don't remember any specific instance as vividly as I remember that first one, but I do remember being there at a time where either I was there alone or they were outside doing something else and snooping. <laughs> I was a really good snooper. Okay. And I remember pulling out documents and, and reading about the KKK and they were internal documents. Like oh, wow. there were like handbooks, like, an, you know, like rules and like, I don't know exactly the best word, but I don't know. We'll just say like an employee handbook or an onboarding handbook of some sort. Um, things about, you know, like a board of directors might have, your, um, what is it called? Their bylaws. So they were kind of like things like that, reflections from minutes of meetings and stuff. Uh, and then there were also deeper in the closet, not in a box because they were too large, but there were swords as well. Swords? Yeah, there were, there were KKK swords. 
What, what were those? What they do with those? I yeah, I, they're for ceremonies. I, I I guess I don't I don't know. I hope I hope that's the extent of what they were for, but I don't know. And so, was there a catalyst for your mom's revelation to you? Did something happen where she just felt the need to finally tell you the truth? I don't think so. I mean, we were really we were really close growing up, and I think that we were probably just talking about something and driving past that high school, and she said, "You know, you remember the that stuff that's in the closet? Well, here's." here's what's up, you know, this is what it was. And this is where I have my first memory of being in a KKK march. And and what was your mom's impression of her parents' activities? How did, how did she, you know, frame that to you? Okay. So two, two things, right? One is that she has this positive frame on what my grandfather and the KKK did around like being some kind of like, uh, I don't know, community service as if it's a good thing. And then when she talks about my grandmother, she talked about her now at the time, deep humiliation about it and told me not to ask her kind of like I was told they were, everyone was told, don't ask my great grandmother about my uncle. This time I was told, don't ever ask your grandmother about this. She hates talking about it. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. Um, and so she doesn't want to talk about it. And that was why they had never gotten rid of all the things in the closet. Cause she didn't know what to do with them without physically having to out herself as being involved. So they just lingered back there in this closet deep in a trailer in Appalachia. Uh, so that was pretty much it. It was, it was humiliation and a positive framing, which is interesting to me. So you described that your grandparents had had kind of a journey that they were saved and left the KKK. Do you know how that came about? You know, I really don't know what would actually spark that other than all I can imagine is that my grandfather died of a very aggressive cancer. And I think that this timeline of them being involved, him getting cancer, he, he was melanoma. He died really soon after he had the diagnosis. And I think that probably from, from what I can kind of deduce sparked this need to get into the church and think about your life a lot deeply because it's about to be over soon. And um, that, that's kind of what I've come to understand. I think that's what caused it. Right. And so they were active during what years? I think it was sometime around the mid 1960s to the mid 1970s, and um, and you'll you'll probably know that that was the height of the civil rights movement. So the KKK was really active during that time in the region I grew up in. Yeah, yeah, it's when uh, Medgar Evers was killed. Um, there were fire bombings and assassinations or killings. Yeah, and activists were killed. A lot of really bad stuff. Yeah. Uh, and Med Grevers, of course, was the NAACP organizer in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. You described to me that you felt drawn to go back to the trailer and continue just looking at that box and discovering things, right? I did. I did it several times. I mean, I finally got to the point where I would tell my mom that I, I just got really interested and I would go in and read stuff in there. I remember yeah, there were a few times where I you know, maybe I'd had a social studies class and we had talked about the civil rights movement or something like that. And the KKK came up. So I would go and, and dig around and, and read stuff. I don't have really solid memories other than remembering something about bylaws or rules for behavior because so much of it was out of context. It would be like walking into someone else's office and just going through all their paperwork. I didn't really know what I was looking at back then. You know, it's too bad you don't have any of those bylaws anymore. Or do you? I don't have anything. We we went through a, quite a phase after everybody died of dealing with getting rid of all that stuff. 
we had quite a few discussions, my mom and I did, after my grandma died, of what to do with everything. My, from my memory, that it was it was a hell of a year, but that my mom wanted to um, donate it all to a museum, and I didn't feel like that was appropriate. By this time, I had already moved and been, uh, as she says, indoctrinated at a liberal arts college. But I, I didn't feel like that was the right thing to do. I wanted to get rid of it all. And she felt like that wasn't the best approach that we needed to keep some of it, not us keep it, but do something with it, like give it to a museum. I wasn't there. To, I wasn't the, actually the one that got rid of it. But what I understand happened to most of it is that she burned or or whatever, did something. I think she said she burned the paperwork uh, and the robes and the swords went to a museum somewhere in the area where I grew up and all of this happened. In, in your secret, Noel, you described something that I hope you don't mind telling us about, and that is something your great-grandmother said about what to do when she found out that you had a black roommate in college. Oh, yeah, Ben, that one, that one was wild. Noel was reluctant to share this part of her story, but I'm glad she did. Hear it when we come back in just a moment. I get some help diving deeper into Noel's story, but first. My great-grandmother found out that I had a black roommate in college when I first moved away. And I don't know how she found out. She was absolutely horrified about it. And so she um, sent me a box with a card and a bottle of Lysol. And the card said that it was for spraying down the toilet seat when I have to sit down behind my black roommate, but she didn't use that word. She used the N word in writing. Uh, yeah, and that you can get the seven-year itch if you have to sit down behind black people on a toilet, and I needed to be really careful. <laughs> even even before that, I had uh, my friend Carla, I told you about earlier, she and I would have sleepovers all the time, and every summer I would go to see my great-grandmother. She would be like, you're not letting that little N-word girl stay at your house, are you? And my mom would be like, don't say that. That's not nice. That's her friend, stuff like that. I mean, she was like that even before college, and when I went to college, my first um, roommate. I had two roommates. One was black and African-American and the other one was white. My great-grandmother found out that I had a black roommate in college when I first moved away. And I don't know how she found out. She was absolutely horrified about it. And so she um, sent me a box with a card and a bottle of Lysol. And um, the card said that um, it was for spraying down the toilet seat when I have to sit down behind the um, my black roommate, but she didn't use that word. She used the N-word in writing. Uh, yeah, and that you can get the seven-year itch if you have to sit down behind black people on a toilet, and I needed to be really careful. You know, that is such a ugly, horrific, horrible story. I can't even find the right adjective. I know it's really hard for you to share because you said in your secret, it feels so fucked up to write this stuff. And please don't share this. So thank you for electing to share it with us because it is such an illustration of how ugly racism is. Yeah. And it was super, super fucked up. I, I just was blown away. I remember being so terrified she would find that card. Sorry. Like making me tear up a little because it's like, you know, I was so far removed from there. I got out of that town because I hated it there. I didn't want to be there anymore. 
just to receive that was awful. And, and she and I were really close. Some of my best memories in my life were of how sweet and loving she was to me. And it's just so crazy. It's like a, a hard to really reconcile someone that you see as like your loving, sweet grandmother to send you something so fucking hateful and weird and awful. For her to be able to say something like that, it really shows how Jim Crow laws just penetrated into the mindset, you know? Mm, And she was drawing a straight line from black people to disease because she's saying you've got to clean them up with Lysol. Right. And it's just awful. Exactly. Let's just move on. It's enough on that, but it's just terrible. Yeah. You felt a great deal of love for your grandparents, right? Yeah. They were kind to you, and yet they are also racist. Yeah. And so how, how do you reconcile that, you know, loving people that harbored such ill views? Ben, I don't, I don't even really know. You know, it's like my mom and I now, even though she was more actively trying to teach me not to hate people than, than, than my great grandmother was, I'm not as close to her. I don't, but when I think about my great grandmother and my grandma, it's nothing but good memories because they were so sweet to me. I mean, you know, holding me, rubbing my bag, cooking me food, spending time with me. I mean, I was the only child, only grandchild and only great grandchild in the family. So I was, I was babied by everyone because I was the last, I'm the last one in that whole lineage. You know, it's hard because they were so good to me and it's weird, you know, people, and they have a right to be, get really, you know, specific, angry viewpoints on on people like this, but to their own, they're nothing but amazing. Right. You know, so I was one of their own. I was, I'm the granddaughter of a KK active KKK member and I love her to death. I still do. I I mean, it's hard to talk through this without choking up, but it's so hard for me to really reconcile that. I don't know. I don't know if I need a time to grieve and be mad at her. I don't know what I need yet. I've never talked about this with anybody other than one adult since I was in high school, I told a boyfriend in high school this whole thing one time. And his response to me was he asked if he could borrow the KKK ropes for Halloween. And I never told anybody else ever again until my friend inspired me to do this on the podcast. So I don't know. I just, I don't know. I haven't thought about it a lot because I've tried to, I guess, bury it. And so I don't mean this to sound insensitive, but do you feel the need for some sort of redemption yourself just because of the sins of your ancestry? You know what? Honestly, no. I don't I don't feel like I need to be I don't need redemption because of them. I feel like I have work to do on my own to undo things I have done to contribute to systemic racism, either accidentally or whatever, you know, not, not purposefully, of course, that I know of. So I think I'm more focused on that. And I'm not really I hate what they did. I don't really know a lot about what they did, though. It's a secret, so it's hard to feel like I need redemption based on assumptions. I know what they did was awful. There's no doubt about that. I'm going to quote part of your secret back to you. Okay. You said, I'm just kind of struggling with whether or not this is something I should never tell anyone because of everything that's going on, or I should talk about it because of everything that's going on. Hmm. And I love that. And it seems to me like you've actually decided. Yeah. Because you're here talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think Ben, I told you I had a friend that inspired me to do this and yeah. she, Camille is black, but she's not African-American. I'd had a couple glasses of wine and a little bit of courage. And I said, I, I want to tell you something about me that you don't know. And I just want to see what you think, you know, cause she and I are close. We've been friends long before all this stuff started, you know, 
I told her and she was like, you have to do something with this. This is a very powerful story. And I did not expect that. I didn't know what she was going to say, but I didn't, I, I, I don't know what kind of power it has, but I know that she says she felt like I should do something. And I've been listening to the secret room for a long time and never thought I had anything really interesting to tell. And then I was like, holy oh. shit. Oh yeah, you do. Maybe I should call Ben and tell him this. I wonder if this would be the way to get this out in a way that doesn't feel like, you know, because part of me doesn't want people to know it's me. I have a professional job that, as a psychologist, and I don't want people to know. I work with Africans a lot in my line of work, and I don't, not African-Americans necessarily, but African people, and I don't, I don't know. Like, I, I, I felt like I'm kind of scared if this got out, out of context, and so it hit me that this would be a really nice way to share it anonymously, and I'm going to send this to her, and I told her I was doing this today, and she said she was super proud. That's really great. Do your parents know that you're doing this interview? No one knows that I'm doing this interview except for her, for Camille. And so when we started the interview, when we were setting up, before the tape was rolling, <laughs> you said, you said, I'm going to text my husband and tell him I'm starting the interview on, you know, another podcast. <laughs> and it's perfectly believable excuse because you've told me you do interviews uh, in your line of work. Why haven't you told your husband that you're doing this interview? I don't know. He doesn't know about all this. Oh. No, he doesn't know any of this stuff. And so you know that uh, the first time he's ever been to my hometown, and he and I have known each other over a decade, been married for half that long, and he had only just been to my hometown last year. I never took him there. I told you I hate going there. <laughs> and so um, I, I took him there for the first time, and it was rough. I mean, I took him to church with my mom, and it was a sermon, in my opinion, that was quite full of hate. And I think he had enough. I think he needs to process my background a little now that he's been to my hometown and, and met more of my family. I don't know. I just don't want to get into this yet with him. And he's kind of quiet. He's an introvert. I love him to death, but he doesn't say a lot. And I think it would kill me if I told him all of this and he didn't say anything. It's different talking to you because you ask me questions and we go back and forth. Right. <laughs> but with him, I think he would just be like, holy fuck. And he wouldn't know what to do. And I don't, I don't know. I don't want, I just don't want that kind of feedback yet. I think I'm just scared. Does part of your fear come from a fear in you that, you know, that you don't think he would react well, that does he harbor any racist tendencies that you think might be at odds with your story? No, um, not at all. Actually, um, I'll tell you, interestingly enough, if I can tell you this real quick, please. he just found out his mom passed away a year before last. And right before she died, we were sitting there with her mother, so his grandmother and his mom, the, the rest of the family. And um, the grandmother, the matriarch, she said that she needed to get something off her chest and that all the brothers and sisters had grown up believing that their grandmother was part Italian she wanted them to know that that wasn't true, that she's actually half black, she's Jamaican, and that they could never tell her husband who's still alive because he's racist and he would divorce her even though they're in their 90s now. It, it, it ended up in this huge fight that night and one of the brothers ended up leaving because he was so angry that he had never been told. He grew up thinking he was Italian, but he's actually Jamaican. No, I don't think he's racist, but he is definitely quiet. And this hurt his family a lot a couple years ago, so I don't feel like I could... I don't know. It's just not time yet, I guess, to tell him about this whole thing until that all simmers down because he's still working on Ancestry.com to figure out who his black relatives are. So my husband is a quarter of 25% Jamaican, apparently. Okay. <laughs> and nobody even knew. <laughs> 
gosh, Noel, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing this amazing story. Thanks for giving me the venue to do that. I never felt like it fit anywhere else in my life. You're welcome. Noel's long journey was born of inauspicious origins, and it's emblematic of where we are today. And it wasn't lost on me, or any of us here, that the conversation that you just heard ought to be expanded to include someone with a perspective neither of us share. Noelle agreed, so I'd like to introduce Secret Room producer, Sashel Brooks. You've heard her name in the credits a lot, and it's great to have you in front of the mic, Sashel. Hi, Ben. Hey. Thanks a lot for helping me prepare for the interview we just heard. You're welcome. It's truly a very powerful story. You contribute to the podcast, of course, but in your day job, you're also committed to grassroots education support in the Southern United States. Yeah, but I'll say it for you. I'm also black. <laughs> and yes. And, and when we were talking about this episode, it was just so obvious that you had insight that I could never hope to have and that you should just get into the studio with me to talk some more with Noelle. This is true. Hi, Noelle. Great to have you here. Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me again. Hi, Noelle. I'm really excited to be able to talk to you, Noelle. Hearing your secret and being able to have this dialogue, I didn't think I'd have an opportunity like this. Yeah, well, thanks for joining. I'm really glad to have your perspective. Can we talk about loving people who are racist? Yep. Do you believe that your mom believes in systemic racism, Noelle? Um, no, I really don't think that she does, to be you know completely honest. I think that she needs to unlearn that not everyone in our country has a fair chance at being you know, happy and having everything they need to be successful. Uh, I, I think that she definitely is more on the train of thought that it's an equal opportunity country we live in. And if you're not able to make it, that's not anyone else's fault but your own. And I think that that's a key facet in systemic racism. And I definitely don't think that she believes it, um, at least judging by some of the social media posts and conversations that we've had in the past. I was glad you used the term anti-racist in your secret. Acknowledging that racism exists is a first step. Can I ask both of you guys a question on like what you see as the difference of being anti-racist versus being an active ally? Yeah. So, um, you know, Sashel, I think that being anti-racist has a lot to do with, you know, actively watching out for your own biases and how they influence your words and actions and um, the circles of people and organizations you hang out with. Um, and then also in those organizations and communities, kind of keeping an eye out for those biases and words and actions and how those are um, potentially, I guess, perpetuating systemic racism and just making sure that you're keeping an eye on that all the time, that there's really no good time to stop doing that. So well stated, Noel. Um, I think this is a really good question because it's like learning and teaching all wrapped up in one. Um, for anti-racism, I'd say that that's when you challenge concepts that support racism. And an active ally is someone who responds in the moment to this, you know, the same concepts when they're expressed. Like if I'm in a group um, and someone makes like an overt or implied racist comment, I'm an active ally if I call it out. And I think that's something that we really need to work on. Yeah, I agree, Ben. I'm so glad you said that, Ben. Yeah. It's it's hard because if you're in a meeting uh, where you have uh, reporting relationships with people, yeah, or if you're with family, and we all know how complicated family dynamics are anyway, it's really, really hard. It takes strength and conviction to be an active ally in awkward situations, and you have to figure out your way each and every time. I agree, Ben. Truly. Yeah. What would you say is next in your anti-racism journey? You can answer this too, Ben. Okay. 
Yeah. Well, for me, um, so shall I, I, I plan to keep on learning and listening. I want to find, you know, I want to work with my husband to find their family members that, uh, are in Jamaica. I think that would be incredible. And maybe even some of my own, um, uh, and I think I'm just going to keep doing what I can in the circles that, that I'm in to improve. Right. So I'm in, you know, boards and organizations and I volunteer and just trying to help hold us all accountable for dismantling systemic racism when we see it in our own organizational activities. That's definitely a big one for me. And I do a lot of training for other people and for the public. So I'm going to be thinking a lot about how I can make sure that I'm working that into educating others as much as possible. That's awesome. And for me, I think I'm going to, you know, really embrace the the two terms that you opened the interview with, Sashel, you know, being anti-racist and being an active ally. And it's something that I feel that, you know, I've dedicated my life to being, but, you know, to really double down, you know, to really mean it. You know, I think active ally is a term that maybe many people are hearing for the first time in in this interview. And it's a term that I really want to be proactive about and to evangelize. And, you know, I look back on my own life and there have been so many times when people have said objectionable things and I didn't say anything. It is tricky, but I am going to dedicate myself to that for sure. One thing I do for my job are a lot of training programs and I do a lot of work in Africa actually. And, um, so, uh, you know, if I can tell you a quick story about something that happened to me that was really moving. Um, Please do. So um, when I was I was working in southeastern Africa on a project, and I was actually in Tanzania, and one of my colleagues who's Tanzanian asked if he could take me somewhere to uh, show me a place that meant a lot to him. And so we got in this tuk-tuk with another woman um, who's a colleague of mine from Uganda, and we took this little car out to a museum in this town called Ujiji. And if anyone's familiar with the, you know, famous, I guess, quote of Dr. Livingston, I presume this is the place where he was and where he passed away. And there's been a museum erected to commemorate him and the work that he did on slavery in this part of Africa. And so I, I went to this museum and it was amazing to, to have this guide who knew so much about the history and after what was even more powerful than the museum, though, is that my colleague asked if he could take me somewhere even more special that, he, as he puts it, white people never go. And I was like, of course, absolutely. And so we rode in this tuk-tuk. We go down this really wide red clay road with these huge trees on both sides. And there's tons of little houses on both sides of the road. And he asked me if I would get out, um, my colleague and I and him, and walk arm in arm down this road. And I was like, absolutely, of course. And so we did. And oh, I just get, you know, chills kind of talking about this. But he tells me that we're on the route that enslaved people walked from where we were all the way across the entire country to the coast to be shipped to the Middle East. And this was the route that enslaved people walked. And all these trees were mango trees that were planted so they would have food along the way. And this was adults and children. And a lot of people died along the way. And it was just really powerful. My colleague and I were both crying and, um, it just meant a lot to him to take us there. And it was really an emotional moment. It was actually broken up by this tiny little voices, uh, kind of a little far away from me screaming, Mazungo, Mazungo. And there was little toddlers, kind of a little herd of toddlers following us. And they were pointing at me screaming that word, which means white person. Mm-hmm. They were pointing at me and smiling. And, uh, it was just like, it was such a moving moment. It took me weeks to process all of that. And I think that I could do a better job of telling, you know, that story and bringing in what, you know, what people went through as I think about how to be a more active ally. 
And, you know, maybe another closing thought. I wanted to say that. Also, I played your interview, Noel, to a friend of mine shortly after we did it. Mm-hmm. And she's black. And uh, she told me she cried. And she thought your story was really, really bittersweet, both happy and sad. So I wanted to give you that feedback. Thank you. That means a lot to me because I had no idea what this was going to be like and what talking about it so publicly was going to to be like for, for me and for other people. So thank you. That I mean, I don't want her to cry, obviously, but that means a lot to me that it, <laughs> that it you know meant something to her on that kind of a level. Truly. I'm really glad you shared it. Me too. Yes. Thank you for being vulnerable with us. Thanks for giving me the space to do so. I never really knew what to do with all this until I... Worked up the nerve to call the call the the secret room. Yeah, <laughs> leave Ben a cryptic voicemail. <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm like, wait, wait a minute. We got to find out more about this. This has been great. Yeah, that was. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Noel has heard the stark bellow of racism that beset people of color, and her creed of care is just for a society that can actualize equality. Is that too much to ask? And there's even more to Noelle's story. Join me when Noelle tells us what her husband knows about her secret. I have a somewhat possibly anticlimactic update for you. Uh, oh my gosh, what could it be? Join me in just one week to find out. That's Susie Lark, your host for The Secret Room Unlocked, available to members who support your favorite indie podcast that could, exclusively at patreon.com slash secretroom. And Noelle sent some photos, see Noelle and her family, and an amazing picture of her grandparents' trailer, where she found the KKK robes. They're waiting for you on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, at Secret Room Pod. And while you're on Facebook, check out the fan-run Secret Room podcast discussion group. It's a lot of fun in there. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Our production team this week, <laughs> Sashel Brooks. Thanks, Ben. You are welcome, Sashel. You're the best. And Susie Lark. Our hashtag flipper is Alessandra Nigro. Chet is the sound engineer. And our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Ben, I miss Lefty already. We all have to chart our own path, Ben. Watch out for that door. No, you worry about yourself. Lefty Marcucci is gone, Sasha. It's really time to move on. Not for me, Ben. Not for me. (laughs) Sasha. Do you have a pleonastic secret to share? Send it to us through our website secretroompod.com. This is The Secret Room, a podcast about the stories no one ever tells. I'm Ben Ham. And I'm Sachel Brooks. Pod on, guys. Pod on, Ben. Pod on. <laughs> we were not at <laughs> the same time. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs>